Good morning. It's good to see you all. You can join me in turning in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 36. We're continuing in our series through the story of the Bible, which tells us the true story of the world, of which we're a part. And so this morning, we're going to look at one of the most hopeful and psychologically profound texts in the Bible. It's part of a Bible you may not have read very often. So Ezekiel 36, if you don't have a Bible with you, please do grab one. We have them under chairs nearby. And you can find Ezekiel 36 on page 724 in the Bibles under the chairs. Uh, I remember sitting on the floor of my dorm room in college with my Bible open in front of me, looking at this chapter and a few other ones like this in the prophets. And I realized in those very minutes as I was thinking about this text and other ones that are like it, these promises and the prophets, I realized in that moment I was taking a surge forward in my understanding of the Bible story and what it's all about. It, it made, this text made sense of not only how the whole Bible fit together, but why Jesus came. And it made sense of my own heart and life to me. The Bible tells us the true story of the world, and this is a turning point. So when we read this promise, the reality to which this promise speaks is uh, the turning point of the Bible. When things were at their worst, prophets like Ezekiel often draw attention to the sad state of Israel in the Old Testament. They are sometimes unrelenting, God through these prophets, unrelenting in speaking about their sin and the judgment that is on the horizon for them. And yet through the prophets, we get these surprising bursts of grace. So if you read the prophets, you can feel like there's a storm cloud overhead with thunder like last night. And then there's sunshine just bursts through at times. And so that's what this text is. These hopeful promises show us what Jesus was to come to do and has come to do. So, Ezekiel 36 shows us what you and I most deeply need. We'll read it in just a moment, but there are many important things in life uh, for us to do that can help us get traction in life and change, right? We want change in so many ways. I came across uh, yesterday or the day before um, a, an advertisement that was about how to make changes in your life and in your business. And it had 30 suggestions, and they were helpful. How do you make progress in your life and business this week? A lot of wisdom. Wake up early. Read daily. Eat well. Set goals. Have a positive attitude. Delegate more. Be productive. Find inspiration, and so forth. I mean, all very helpful and important. But what about those moments when we feel absolutely stuck, and a list like that is actually a burden, because we've tried and it's not working and we have no motivation to try anymore. What about the times when we feel like all of our efforts in these areas don't work and there's something deeply wrong that we can't change? We see that the problem is our own selves, right? It's our own heart. We can't just will ourselves out of the mess we've gotten our in, ourselves in or will ourselves out of our patterns of anger or other behaviors or addictions or thoughts or feelings. So we need something more. And Ezekiel 36 shows us what we need and how God would give it through Jesus. So this is good news for people whose lives often feel like bad news. So Ezekiel 36, we're going to read verse, 
um, 16 through 32. So follow along as I read here. The word of the Lord came to me, said Ezekiel, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, so Israel's scattered from the land, when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Verse 22, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land." I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I, gave to your, that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. So here's what this text is about. God is promising that he will renew his people for the sake of his name among all nations. So we'll walk through this in three steps. We'll see that our problem is deeper, our or God's commitment is stronger, and Christ's work is greater. And deeper, stronger, greater than what? Uh, The way I'm thinking about this morning is just it's deeper than we know or maybe have known. God's commitment is stronger than we may have thought, and Christ's work is greater than we may have thought. For some of us, maybe there's nothing new this morning. But we always can go deeper in understanding these things and be reminded and more in awe um, of the great salvation God gives us. So first, our problem is deeper. Verse 17 is a concise summary of Israel's whole history in their land. 
So you can either read through most of the Old Testament and get the summary. You can read through Ezekiel up to this point and get the summary, or you can read this one sentence. What were they like? When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. That's a summary of their story. The land itself, you see, was defiled by them. I think of the land like a home where something terrible happened. Homes, we can have memories of these places, and they can feel polluted and defiled. I watched Forrest Gump again recently, and if you've seen that, Forrest's childhood friend Jenny grew up in a terrible home where terrible things happened. And later in the, in the movie, she goes back to that home and just breaks down in front of it, weeping and crying and throwing rocks at it. The home is a character in the story. And later, Forrest uh, has it raised to the ground because that needed to happen, because that house was defiled. Israel did that to the land by being in it in the way that they were. What did they do? Verse 18 gives another concise summary. God said, I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. So God's law summed up in two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. They rejected both of those continually from the beginning. They rejected God, filled with idols here. They rejected their neighbors, shedding of innocent blood. And these two things may actually be combined in a particularly terrible way in their history because idolatry and the shedding of blood were actually combined in many of the nations around them and how Israel may have participated. Ezekiel actually drew attention to this earlier in the book, how those two things were brought together, and it was brought together through child sacrifice. Um, so you think about what the land had seen, but just stepping back, it's not just that Israel's land had seen those things. Think about just the land on this planet in all that it has seen and felt. Think about the soil of our own nation, the shedding of innocent blood through, through a long period of slavery and then now abortions. Our land is defiled. The land of Israel was defiled. And therefore God judges. And because of their sin, he sent them out of the land and scattered them among the nations. And Israel rejected God from the very beginning. You can read Ezekiel 20 if you're interested later. All through the prophets, you get these little points that the situation isn't that just Israel's kind of decent people, and every once in a while they broke a minor command and God's overreacting. No, from the beginning, they refused to love God and trust Him and obey Him uh, from the time He brought them out of Egypt and beyond. And so they never had any period in their history where they were faithful. Israel is uh, a test case for the human condition, lest we look at Israel and think they were particularly worse than other nations at the time or even today. Of all the nations, I mean, think about it, of all the nations, there's one nation that had the best shot at being a humane society under the Lord. They were redeemed by grace. They were given God's clear expectations of what it means to love Him and to love other people, and then spelled out in all sorts of concrete situations. They were blessed in their land, and they still failed. Israel's problem was a heart problem, right? Heart in the Bible is not just the emotions. It's the core of who we are. It's the place of our deepest thoughts and desires and motivations. Uh, I could use the word affections. That is the problem of the human heart, and that was the problem of Israel. And so Israel's story is really a mirror 
of humanity's story. When we, when we see their story, we're looking in a mirror, we're looking at ourselves. We're seeing humanity's problem as a problem of the heart. So even though our problem, though, is deeper than we may know, and just reflecting on it, we, we even see this even in a little bit here, God's commitment is stronger. So second, God's commitment is stronger than we may think. And we see this next in verses 20 to 23. Look at verse 20 with me. God says, but when they came to the nations where they were scattered, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. So God's name is his reputation. It's his character or reputation. So how did Israel profane God's name? Well, we may think at first they profaned it by maybe blaspheming him as they went among the nations. But actually, look what it says next. They profaned my holy name in that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of the land. So do you see, it's the fact that Israel had to actually go into exile into these other nations that profaned God's name. So think about it. As these nations would see these Israelites in chains march to these other nations and coming to their own, what would they think? Well, in their mindset, what happens when a nation is defeated? Their God is defeated. Apparently, whoever the God of Israel is, isn't very strong because he let us conquer them and ship them all away. He must not be powerful, or if he is, he must not really be that committed to them or care about them. And so God says he will act for the sake of his name. Look at verse 22 with me. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. So God is about to act for the sake of his reputation, his name, for, for the sake of the nations knowing who he really is and what he's really like, his character. Now that could sound selfish at first, but here's what God's saying. There's a number of things going on here. One of them is this. God is making it clear that when he acts, when he brings this great decisive act of rescue, redemption, salvation, when that happens, he wants it crystal clear that it was not because they did anything to make themselves worthy of it or that they were somehow more righteous than other people. From the very beginning of their history, he made that clear. In Deuteronomy 9 and 10, he said, just to be clear, I am not your God in rescuing you because you are more righteous than other nations. You're actually not. I'm doing it because I love you and I'm faithful to my promises to Abraham to unfold this story of grace. And he's coming right back to it here. They've left the land and he says, just to be clear, I'm doing this uh, not because you are righteous or worthy, but because I have attached my reputation to you. I have joined my name to your well-being here. And the nations need to know who their God is, who their creator is, and his character. He says, I'm the one true God, and I have a plan of grace to unfold. And this is actually great news for us, because God's deepest commitment, I mean, think about this, implication of what God's saying here. God's deepest commitment to us is not rooted in our fickleness. Isn't that good news? It's not rooted in us working up enough worthiness to him. It's rooted in his own self. It's his steady commitment into his name. And why is that good news? Because God's name is his character. And what is this God like? He is a God of perfect justice and goodness, steadfast love, and mercy. 
And he wants the nations to know that, that they might come to enjoy it. So if God is going to save you and me, it's going to be for this same reason. Because we just saw that our problem is deeper than we could have known. It's our own hearts, the core of who we are. And so we can't just get our act together. And so it's good news that God is committed for the sake of his name. And this isn't hope just for Israel, but for the world, because it's through this story of unfolding grace through history that we see unfolding in the Bible, that we see who God is. It shows us really the good news of how God will act in the world, in the gospel, in the work of Christ. So that's third what we see next. The work of Christ is greater than we may have thought. Verses 24 to 30 are this next section, and here we see the promises that Jesus came to fulfill. This describes what uh, we could call the new covenant. So there's several paragraphs like this among the prophets that speak of this new covenant. Ezekiel around here calls it the eternal covenant or the covenant of peace. Jeremiah refers to it as the new covenant. It's all referring to the same thing. This is God's promise of what he'll do to rescue not just Israel, but the nations and bring them into um, a full restoration. Ultimately, a new creation. And he'll do this not because we deserve it, but because of who he is. And that's clear. Look at verses 24 to 30. Do you see how almost every line begins? I will. I will. Or and, which is another way of saying I will. I will. Over and over. This is what God will do for his namesake to people that cannot help themselves uh, and don't even know how to help themselves. So five promises. First regathering, verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. So Israel was scattered away from their land and God's going to bring them back in, returning them from exile. And he did this in part already in history before Jesus came. He returned some of them from exile in their land. But the way the prophets develop this promise and other ones like it, Uh, connects it to something even greater, not just Israel's return to the land, which only happened in part, but of really humanity's return to Eden. Israel in the land of Canaan was always meant to be this pointer to humanity's return to a land of flourishing. And so the prophets are waiting for this great coming together of Israel and the nations returned to God. Second promise is cleansing, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. So Israel was defiled, the land was defiled from their failure to love God and others, and one of the deep psychological effects of sin, which maybe you felt at different times, maybe you feel even now, is this feeling of uncleanness, needing to wash ourselves from what we've done, being defiled by our own sin or the sin of others against us. And God is able to wash and to cleanse from all uncleanness. And he is now fulfilling this promise in Jesus. Washes us and cleanses us from our sins. We saw that pictured in baptism with the washing of the water um, as a washing of uncleanness. Third promise is the new heart. Look at verse 26 with me. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So Israel's problem and our problem was the problem of the heart, and God is saying, he'll just give us a new one. 
Stark contrast. A heart of stone replaced the heart of flesh. So God just doesn't just give us a spiritual heart surgery uh, to fix a little problem. He doesn't just do a bypass. Our problem is that we need a new heart altogether. And he takes a hardened, cold, dead toward God heart, and he gives us a soft, warm, tender heart. Theologically, we call this regeneration. Jesus, in a conversation with a man named Nicodemus in John 3, is really drawing on this very text in his conversation with him. And the way that Jesus puts it is, you must be born again. New birth. We can't just decide on our own to start trusting, loving, and following Jesus. We can't fix our problems at our deepest level. Only God can do it. And he does it by cleansing us and just taking out that heart of stone and putting in a new heart with new desires, the core of who we are transformed. Fourth promise, the Holy Spirit. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you. And listen to this. Here's the result of that. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So he will send his spirit to dwell in his people. And for what purpose? Partly to transform us to begin to actually make progress in obeying him, reflecting his character in the world. Look how strong this language is. He doesn't say, I will put my spirit within you and help you to walk in my statutes. He doesn't say, I'm going to do my part to meet you halfway in hopes that you would start obeying. No, he says he will move us or cause us to obey him. It's one of the most important roles of the Holy Spirit. When we think of the Holy Spirit's work, sometimes we think of maybe certain miraculous gifts or things that feel more extraordinary to everyday life. But one of the primary works of the Spirit is to transform us from the inside out in radical ways, but in ways that may actually look very ordinary and everyday. Uh, in uh, patience rather than exploding in anger. In not walking by that person, but stopping to ask them how they're doing with sincere care. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Typing something on social media and thinking, mm, no, I'm not going to send that. How can I encourage someone instead right now? Right? These, these little ways, radical ways, but they can seem ordinary. That's the Spirit's work. This is why, by the way, this promise is why in the New Testament we read these radical statements about uh, the optimism of the obedience of Christians. Uh, for instance, Philippians 2, 12 to 13, Therefore, my beloved, the Apostle Paul says to a church, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he says, you've obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he says this, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Isn't that amazing? You've obeyed, I want you to keep obeying, and here's my confidence. God himself is going to work in you at the level of your desires, your very will, so that you want to obey him, and then you actually start doing it. 
in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit sanctify to be set apart and devoted to God and transformed. And may your whole soul and body and spirit be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we have confidence in this? He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Not, man, I hope that God would do a bit around and around your heart that you can respond to and hopefully you will so that hopefully you start obeying. No, may God work in your heart to transform you and I'm confident he will. And that's from these kinds of promises we're looking at. If you study the doctrine, doctrine and systematic theology at any point, which I encourage you to do over time, at some point you have to think through this question of just how sovereign is God over our salvation and even our obedience and sanctification. When you study the topic of God's role in our salvation, the New Test- in the New Testament, you see strong statements of confidence in God's work, um, that God chooses us and He irresistibly draws us to His Son, Jesus. He makes us spiritually alive when we were spiritually dead, not just sick, and then He guarantees that we keep believing and will persevere to the end. I remember when I was studying these texts in the prophets, like the one we're looking at this morning, studying that for a few years. Um, well, I was studying these doctrines for, New Year's in New Testament, or for a few years in the New Testament, and then I was also, after that, starting to study these prophetic promises of the New Covenant. And then it clicked, and I realized these aren't just scattered verses in the New Testament that have a high view of God's work in salvation. You've got to ask the question, where did that come from? It came from these promises in the prophets of what God would do in the age of the New Covenant. And so we read this in Ezekiel 36. That's where Jesus is drawing on, and the Apostle Paul is getting his understanding of God's work in our lives. It's because it's what was promised there. Here's the fifth promise, God himself. God promises to restore our lost relationship with him. Verse 28, you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. That's the goal. Not just that his people would be forgiven and cleansed and transformed, but that they would be his that he'd be our God and we'd be his people. So how are these promises fulfilled? Well, you may have noticed as we went here that God is giving these promises to the nation of Israel. So you may wonder, how do these promises apply to people who aren't ethnic Israelites, like probably most of us here? How does this apply to us? Well, here's how. When the, prom- when the prophets promised these kinds of promises of the new covenant, it was always meant for more than Israel, ultimately. The prophets would paint an incredible picture of these things that God would do to restore people to himself. And as they look ahead at how God would restore, and f- restore the people and fulfill these promises, we see two things. First, we see a progression, that these promises as they're unfolded in the prophets would be first for the nation of Israel, and then the nations would get in on it. It'd be for everyone, Israel and the nations. And then the second thing we see as we see these promises unfold further is that these promises start getting so big that they start bursting categories. Uh, here it says, you'll dwell in the land that your fathers, that I promised your fathers. Other prophets will say that, and then they'll say, and you'll multiply and fill, and they'll start expanding. And then God says, he'll bring up just a whole new creation, and the land will actually be the whole earth. And so 
um, Israel and the nations are going to be with God in a new creation. And it's not just going to be no famine, like he says here, other places. It's going to be flourishing like Eden again. Actually, in a few verses, it says it will be like the Garden of Eden. So really what's happening is this big expansion of the promises to extend as far as the curse is found, uh, back to the garden, uh, to undo all the effects of sin, to renew this broken world. And so how do we get in on these promises then? Well, through Jesus. On the night before Jesus died, he had a meal with his disciples, and he raised a cup, and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He's saying that as his blood is poured out, he is beginning or inaugurating the new covenant. Promises like these that we're looking at in Ezekiel 36, he's saying, it's coming. I'm bringing it. The time is now here. The history of disobedience, rejecting God, it's over. I'm giving new hearts. And so Jesus said that the night before he died, and then he did die, and then he rose from the dead. And within a few weeks, he poured out his spirit on his church. Just as God promised, the gift of the spirit to transform his people inside out. Now we're waiting for all of this to be fully fulfilled, right? We look around, we look at our hearts, and we're like, wait a minute. These are really big promises. They resonate to some degree, but I still feel like there must be more. Absolutely. So Jesus is coming back, and he'll make, it, make all things new, and he'll change our wills so fully of, of those who are in Christ that uh, we will never sin again, and there will be never any even hint that we will sin. Um, and in that moment, we will not be wondering, just a side note, what about, what about my choice? What about my will? What about free will? Um, we're just going to say, thank you for changing my will. If I had freedom to do what I want, I might sin again and blow it, right? But in the new creation, God is just the new heart, fully here, fully transformed. What a gift. And we will smile at each other and say, thank you, God, for your sake that you did this for us. And so we're living in the age where these promises are already here, but not yet fully here. Does that make sense, right? So we're experiencing this. If you're in Christ, you have a new heart. You have the Holy Spirit. He is causing you to walk in His ways, but it's in part. And it's steps forward and backward and forward and backward as we progress. So it's kind of like an up and down stock market chart, right? That's the Christian life. So a couple implications as we leave here. Um, first, this gives us great humility. It should, if we take this seriously. Look at verse 31. Then Right After these things come to fulfillment, so we're, we're in this age of fulfillment here, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you'll loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Now, that's not the only response, uh, but it is part of it. God is saying, when I save you and I cleanse you and I give you a new heart, it will not be because you are worthy of it. If, if you bring me anything, it is only your need. The only thing we bring to God is reason for judgment. But he brings to us his grace. And so when we look at our own past and deeds, we, we should have this mingling of, my goodness, what a wreck. And what grace. And so there's this mix of sorrow and sadness for our own sins but great joy and relief and wonder 
in God's grace. So it leads to humble and hopeful joy. That's really where true joy comes from. It's through this path of sorrow as well. Second implication, this helps us understand how God meets our deepest need. I mean, this is the answer to the deepest problem uh, of humanity. When Adam and Eve rejected God, they died spiritually that day, and everyone else is born with a heart that needs to be replaced. It's inclined toward sin rather than God. And really, this helps us understand the whole story of the Bible then, doesn't it? I mean, the Old Testament, that, that the Bible story in the Old Testament is the need for a new heart, and the New Testament is the gift of the new heart. And Israel's story is exhibit A, not because they were worse than the nations, but because they were even more blessed than the nations, and they were just like the nations. It's, it's just obvious then through human history, nobody is going to pull this off on their own. And so God says, not for your sake will I do this, and I'm just going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take it, and if, if God did not promise this, uh, there would be no renewal. But God says, I'm going to do it. Um, so this is the story of the Bible, and he makes this great promise. So if you are trusting in Jesus, if you're following him, uh, one of your first responses regularly should just be looking, look up to God and say, thank you. I'm a Christian because you made me a Christian. I have a new heart because you made me have a new heart. I've, the only obedience I've ever had in my entire life that's truly oriented toward God and others was from you, by your spirit. So thank you. Uh, what a gift. And then we have great confidence and hope. I mean, the Bible doesn't give us uh, this hopeless pessimism about our own ability to change, nor does it give us this naive optimism, but it gives us hopeful realism. We're realistic about who we are and, who our prob- and what our problems are and other people, but there's great hope because God's involved, and He promises to be involved, and His commitment to be involved is not rooted in how responsive we are of our own accord, but it's rooted in His own desire to transform us for our joy and for His glory, uh, for His name's sake. And if you are listening to this this morning and you're new to exploring Christianity, um, this is what God loves to do for people. Uh, You may be well aware of things going on in your own heart and just addictions and patterns and frustrations that you've tried to break free from. And the message of the Bible is stop trying, trust in Jesus. Uh, He came for you. He died for you to be cleansed, and He pours out His Spirit to transform you from the inside out. And then now we take a step forward with a different kind of trying, not kind of from our own resources, but this restful striving, this kind of restfulness in receiving His grace and relying on Him and depending on His Spirit uh, while we make efforts to obey. Finally, this gives us hope for others, doesn't it? Maybe there's someone in your life that you uh, are tempted to stop praying for and just giving up on, and there's no need to do that. Uh, When you are, if you're a parent and you see your children, this gives you great hope for what they most deeply need. Um, The regular prayer of a parent's heart should be, Lord, give them a new heart. Uh, And if he has given it, Lord, keep transforming them by the Spirit. Um, students, as you're in class and you look around at your classmates, uh, every once in a while, just step back and just think, what does this world need? What does this room need? What do these people I love, my friends, need most? They need a new heart, and the Lord can give it. And He might use their friendship with you to bring it. 
And of course, this gives us great hope for ourselves too. We never need to be discouraged and despairing uh, because God is with us and He's for us for His namesake. So this is the new covenant promises. And I wanted to, us to see this text in this series because doesn't this just make sense of the Bible? Um, just how the whole story, of, I think we can tend to under, um, understate Israel's problem and humanity's problem, even in the Old Testament. But you just kind of look at it clear-eyed, like, no, that was really bad. Um, and so, well, that magnifies God's promise. God did what only He could do, promised to just remove these cold, dead hearts and put new ones in. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the story of Your grace that You unfold through the Bible. We thank You for this being the true story that we're a part of. And we thank you that you are active in these profound ways to change us in the core of who we are. So we pray that you would keep doing this work, that you would do above and beyond whatever we could ask or think. We pray that you would give more new hearts in our community and in this room and in this region and around the globe. We pray that you would uh, transform us, help us take steps forward in joyful obedience to you. Only you can do it. And so we're dependent on you. And we long to see you work. In Jesus' name, amen.